Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 1st of October 2018 and this is episode 83. On today's programme, I interview Dr Kate Kennedy from the Oxford Centre for Life Writing, based at Wolfson College at the University of Oxford. She is the author of The Silent Morning, Culture, Memory and the Armistice, 1918, published by Manchester University Press. She's also organising a conference on Owen from Friday the 26th of October to Sunday the 28th of October at Wolfson College in Oxford. The conference is titled Wilfred Owen and Beyond. More details can be found on the interweb. I spoke to Kate from her home in Buckinghamshire. Kate, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. We're going to talk about uh, your interest in Wilfred Owen and his poetry during the Great War. Could you start the interview by giving us some background on yourself and how you became interested in Owen and the First World War? Well, um, I became interested in the First World War very early on uh, because I grew up in a house surrounded by books about the First World War. It was a passion of my father's. Uh, And then I realised how rich the culture was Um, how amazing the music was around the early 20th century and how much interesting literature there was. So it grew as an academic interest through my my undergraduate years and and it stuck with me. I discovered Wilfred Owen on a a family trip to um, to Orr to see Owen's grave and, of course, grew up with Owen's poetry at school for GCSE and then heard Britain's War Requiem. And I think that's probably when Owen really struck me as an extraordinary voice. Before we get into detail, could you tell us about the role of poetry in Edwardian society? Owen himself was justly proud of Britain's poetic history. And at the time that he was uh, growing up and developing, poetry was really flourishing. Uh, He writes that, uh, I do not know in what else England is greatly superior or dearer to me than another land and people other than in its poetry. And it was very important to him, but it was important to many others in Edwardian society. You could find poetry in the newspapers. It was learnt by heart in schools. It was very much more prevalent than it is now. For instance, copies of A. E. Hausman's A Shropshire Lad were taken into into the trenches in their thousands. We can't imagine that happening today. There were many different poets writing in all sorts of different styles, but very broadly, there were the older schools, so perhaps Thomas Hardy, Henry Newbolt, G.K. Chesterton, all of whom were still dominant forces at the outbreak of the war. But there was also a younger brigade who would become known as the Georgians, and they were collected together by Edward Marsh in the very famous Georgian poetry anthologies. So that might be Edward Thomas, Rupert Brooke, W.W. Gibson. And they were modern, but they weren't what we might understand as modernist. They were quite experimental and wanting to escape from a kind of florid Victorian style, but not the kind of modernism of T.S. Eliot um, that we would come on to to explore in the 20s with pieces like The Wasteland in 1922. So, Wilfred Owen, tell me about his early life and how did he develop his ability and interest in poetry? Well, he was born on the 18th of March in 1893 in Shropshire, very Welsh area. It was right on the border, Oswestry, but many still spoke Welsh there. And Owen liked to associate himself with being Welsh. He was born to a, a fairly comfortable middle-class family. And um, when his grandfather died, uh, and they moved, had to move from his big house that Owen loved to Birkenhead, which he was a lot less impressed with, where his father was a stationmaster. And 
at Birkenhead, he went to a fairly average school, the Birkenhead Institute, but it didn't have the Victorian obsession with games and the public school ethos that he might have had had he gone to a big public school. He was a bit picked on for being a SWAT. He wasn't particularly interested in the officer training corps, even if there had been such a thing. He wasn't a kind of a, you know, a public school product, if you like. He was more a lone wolf was his nickname. He was quite a loner. He loved old stories and he grew up in a very religious household with a lot of um, biblical influence. So he grew up with the Bible stories, but also with Shakespeare and Sir Walter Scott. And they're all influences we find in his early poetry. And when the family moved to Shrewsbury in 1907, it was to a, a more a salubrious place. Uh, it's got Tudor buildings, it's more beautiful. He was a bit happier there. And he continued his education at Shrewsbury Technical School. And it was in about 1904 that he discovered poetry and particularly writing it during a holiday that he spent in Cheshire. And his early influences we find really strongly in, in his very, very first work. Uh, the Bible, of course, and romantic poetry, John Keats. I mean, even through up to the point at which he meets Siegfried Sassoon in the middle of the war, we can hear Keats's influence and in Owen's work. So what's, what's, what's the scale and nature of his poetry before the war? Did he write a lot? Yes, he did. He was quite a serious poet quite early on. As I say, he absolutely adored Keats. Uh, he even went to the British Library to, to gaze at Keats's manuscripts and, and was delighted to find some similarities in their handwriting. And he, he found a lot of Keats's hair, either at the British Museum or at Keats's house, and wrote a poem called On Seeing a Lock of Keats's Hair. And it gives you a little bit of an idea of the kind of the flavour of his early verse. I'll, I'll just quote you a couple of lines. It is a lock of Keats's hair. I dare not look too long, nor try to tell what glories I see glistening, glistening there. The unanointed eye cannot perceive their spell. Turn ye to Adonis, his great spirit seek. Oh, hear him, he will speak. So we have this kind of rather florid, overblown, very late romantic language. It's nothing like the Owen that we come to to know that you know, the Dolce Decorum Est or the strange meeting that becomes the canonical Owen of the war. The themes that he explores, however, in his sort of early poetry are ones that do feed through into his his later, more mature work. So he's about nineteen at this point, and. As a late teenager, probably unsurprisingly, he's interested in exploring sexuality. His work's often very sensuous. Along with that, there's a sense of guilt. He seems to write relatively openly about infatuation with other young men and about the beauty of the male body. And he also links that quite often to Christ. Uh, there's a lot of images of Christ on the cross. And this idea of, sort of sacrifice and sensuality and religious imagery is something that we find all through his later poetry. So we come to the war and he uh, gets a commission or he's commissioned in 1915. What was his motivation for enlistment? Well, he'd been a, a tutor in Bordeaux when the war broke out. And to begin with, at the start of the war, he was reading the newspapers comfortably in armchairs in the safety of Bordeaux. And the only thing that was close to home um, to him were a few French ladies who'd started volunteering as nurses. And we find in his letters that he's really quite excited about the war, as were many people in Britain as well. He wanted to see the fighting and he wanted to be part of it. And his idea of war is thoroughly romanticised. The culmination, as he says in a letter, of his years of reading history and playing soldiers, it's, it would be the last war of the world, he says, and he has a mania to go and see it happen. But it's amazing that within a year as he starts to understand more about the war, uh, he can write a poem called The Winter of the World, which begins, 
with perishing great darkness closes in, the foul tornado centred at Berlin is over all the width of Europe world, rending the sails of progress. This is completely different. So very quickly, his attitude to war changes during 1914. While at first he feels that the guns could do a little useful weeding. Uh, this is a, a horrible idea, but one that was very current. Rupert Brooks says something the same. Brooks says that you know it will kind of war will cleanse us of the unnecessary. It's this horrible sort of eugenicist idea that actually war is quite a good thing. It will shake shake the world up and get rid of the weaker people. He of course quickly realizes that war will also kill all the intellectuals and the great musicians and the great poets, and that it is absolutely hideous. And he becomes he's friend with a doctor who takes him to a makeshift hospital in a school and there he witnesses some operations and some horrible injuries which he draws with a kind of ghoulish relish in letters to his mother to show her the kind of things that can happen in war and that's in October 1914 and that probably is one of the key turning points of him beginning to realise what war actually means helps him to, to start thinking about enlisting himself. His will to fight seems still more to be out of curiosity and a sense of adventure than anything else. And even by the summer of 1914, sorry, by the summer of 1915, he isn't sure, he doesn't want the bore of having to train. He toys with enlisting in the French army and even with the Italian army, who of course end up fighting on the other side. But he plumps for the artist's rifles, in obviously in the British army in the end, because that was the standard route for anyone abroad who was returning. So he signs up to be enlisted in the artist's rifles, toys with the idea, again, of applying for a transfer to the RAF because he thinks that Zeppelin slaying would be a bit like dragon slaying and a bit more glamorous in the trenches, but that doesn't come to anything. What, what's his early poetry and early early career like, sort of in 19, um, early, sorry, late 1915, early 1916? Well, once he's become a soldier uh, and he's still writing, his poetry begins to shift from his Keatsian archaic diction to something tighter and more realistic. It's still very much in the kind of Keatsian romantic ethos, but it is becoming something more more 20th century. And, and we end up with a, a period where the combination is very disconcerting. He sort of falls between two stools, if you like. So there's a poem called Has Your Soul Sipped? for instance. And here we have para-rhymes of half-rhymes alongside the Keatsian hyperbole. But then it ends with this shocking image of a small smile on the mouth of a murdered boy. It's it's a poem in the middle of an identity crisis. His letters are very interesting in his, his early career as a soldier. He describes his experiences graphically, uh, but often with a tone of schoolboy glee. So he finds a proper chair in a cottage where there are no billets and and is delighted at finding something with some legs on it that he can sit on and talks about the heavy gun nearby showering his paper with dust each time it's fired. In the letters, there's then, oh, sorry, then there are also letters where there's no sense of the adventure of war, um, but there is the kind of honesty that we find in the later poems, the Owen that we would recognise, like the incident that really traumatises him that he would return to in his poem, The Sentry, when he tells a, a man to stand guard at a dugout and he's blown down the steps of the dugout and blinded and Owen feels personally responsible for this because if he hadn't put him there, it wouldn't have happened. He describes... Passages such as, as this one, I quote from a letter, hideous landscapes, vile noises, foul language, and nothing but foul, even from one's own mouth, for all are devil-ridden. Everything unnatural, broken, blasted, the distortion of the dead whose unburiable bodies sit outside the dugouts all day, all night, 
the most execrable sights on earth. In poetry, we call them the most glorious, but we sit with them all day, all night, and a week later to come back and find them still sitting there in motionless groups. That is what saps the soldierly spirit. So this is the Owen that we would recognise from the bitter, angry poetry that bears testimony to, to the horrors of war. And he's starting to develop that voice in his letters as his experiences uh, accumulate. He has all sorts of terrible, terrible experiences on the Western Front. He's near the Somme um, and Etaples. He um, falls into a cellar and is concussed, is kept behind the lines for a few weeks to recover from it. And when he returns to his battalion, still probably a bit shaky to lead an attack, he is constantly under fire. He remains in an occupied trench that barely has any, any dugouts um, or anywhere to shelter. And he's there under fire for 12 days. And he spends one night there sleeping on a railway embankment and is blown into the air by a shell when he's asleep and develops quite severe shell shock symptoms. He's confused and he's shaking and really he's on the edge of a breakdown, which is the point at which he famously um, is evacuated from the trenches and ends up back in Scotland at Craig Lockhart Hospital. Now here... Uh, he meets Siegfried Sassoon, and this meeting between Sassoon and Owen has been a, a major feature in, in the portray in fictional portrayals by many authors, such as Pat Barker. What actually happened at this meeting, and what impact did that uh, sort of liaison have um, on Owen as a poet? Well, when he arrived at Craig Lockhart Hospital, his work, of course, was still very variable. He was writing fairly unsuccessful sort of pseudo medieval ballads, the Ballad of Lady Yolanda. Um, but then he was also capable of writing much more powerful poems, such as one called The Wrestlers, which was inspired by a legend, a Greek legend of the giant Antaeus. And um, this was a picture that was on the wall of his doctor, Dr. Brock, at um, Craig Lockhart. Secret Sassoon had the very famous Dr. Rivers, who Pat Barker has, has you know, immortalised. Um, but Dr. Brock was very good as well. He was Owen's doctor. And he had a picture on the wall of this giant who had lots and lots of strength and could wrestle anybody until he was lifted up from the earth and his strength came from the ground. And that was the secret to this, this sort of magical power. And then he was weak and helpless. And it was a kind of metaphor for shell shock, effectively, sort of being thrown up into the air, um, discombobulated. So his poem, The Wrestlers, somehow this image strikes a chord with him and he, he writes in a much more modern style, a much more kind of honest and sincere style. He effectively has, has a pretty great time at Craig Lockhart. He's sleeping in, in sheets. He's clean. Um, he suffers from nightmares, of course, as does everyone else there. But during the day, he was throwing himself into life there. He gave a lecture on botany that he was very pleased with. He was socialising with the other men and taking part in the activities. Uh, he was um, editing the magazine called The Hydra, um, this was a hydropathic hospital before the war, hence the Hydra. And then this newcomer, Siegfried Sassoon, arrives, and Owen is absolutely in awe, if not in love. And he, he says to his mother he would rather meet Sassoon than Tennyson, who he absolutely adored, and that Sassoon's trench life sketches were unlike anything ever written. He, he says that Shakespeare reads vapid after these, so, so he's seriously impressed with Sassoon. And he plucks up the courage eventually to knock on his door, with a few copies of Sassoon's poetry collection, The Old Huntsman, under his arm to be signed. He's a real groupie. And Sassoon doesn't even really ask about whether Owen writes himself until the very end of the interview. They, they chat about Sassoon's own war writing. 
and Owen only sort of sheepishly admits to writing a bit of poetry pretty much as he's leaving. Sassoon thinks he seems pleasant but unremarkable and goes back to polishing his golf clubs, sort of idly wondering whether Owen was any good or not. But then, of course, they meet again and they meet again. And Sassoon starts to read Owen's work and realises that he does have something. He disapproves uh, very much of Owen's early sonnets, all the Keatsian stuff, and gives Owen a very strong steer towards the wrestlers, towards this new voice that he's developing. But he also has a political influence on Owen. Uh, Sassoon was there because he had written an open letter to Parliament, a, a very famous sort of act of defiance. And the letter was saying that he believed the war to be deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it, of course, Parliament, and that he believed it had become a war of aggression and conquest, not a war of liberation and defence, which is what they believed they'd signed up to. It's very, very inflammatory stuff. And effectively, he was trying to martyr himself. He you know, he could potentially have been shot. He would certainly have been imprisoned. And his friend, the, the poet Robert Graves, who would become a friend of Owen's as well, tried to save Sassoon by claiming that he wasn't in his, his right mind when he wrote it, hence ending up at Craig Lockhart. And so Sassoon becomes very interested in Owen and they spend most evenings together for, for a good few months, with Sassoon urging Owen to sweat his guts out writing poetry, as he puts it, and, and giving him sort of good practical advice, you know, don't publish early, don't, you know, don't rush into it. And as a result of Sassoon's influence, Owen begins to experiment using colloquialisms. He begins to modernise his language. And of course, he's already experimenting with para-rhyme, this idea of half-rhyming words, in a way, and other people are doing it as well, of course, but Owen really goes for it and it really is becomes the, the trademark of his, his verse. And that combination of immediate modern language and and this sort of modern, slightly um, disjointed feel that the pararyme gives it becomes Owen's recognisable style. And, and these, along with Sassoon's influence and encouragement, help to really fast track him into the Owen that we recognise. One of the first poems they work on together is uh, what Sassoon suggests a title for as Anthem for Dead Youth. And um, an Owen and Sassoon together change it to Anthem for Doomed Youth. And then they go on to write, well, Owen goes on to write Disabled with Sassoon keeping an eye on him and Dolce at Decorum Est. These are the, the kind of the big war poems that we would, we would recognise from the anthologies. So in 1918, Owen volunteers to return to active service and back to France. Why did he do this? Well, for a start, he didn't really have any choice. Um, he went before a medical board and they found him to be fit. So they weren't necessarily going to give him the option of, of not returning. Uh, he was hoping to survive the war and he's, he's sent on home duty for a couple of months to Scarborough. Uh, between Craig Lockhart and going back to the front. And in that time, he's looking for furniture in, in um, antique shops for, for the cottage that he dreams of owning after the war. So there isn't entirely the sense that this is a suicidal mission. But then he also says to his brother on the night before he goes back to the front that he's made up his mind to go back and that he knows he will be killed. But, and quite significantly, he says... It's the only place I can make my protest from. This word protest is very much Sassoon, I think. It really smacks of Sassoon's influence. He says in a letter to Sassoon from the front, I quote, You said it would be a good thing for my poetry if I went back. That's my consolation for feeling a fool. This is what shells scream at me every time. Haven't you got the wits to keep out of this? It's, so it's really complicated, I think. He He's going back almost in homage to Sassoon. He wants to make his protest. He feels he has to be with his men to write about them well. 
So he's going back for the benefit of his poetry, but he doesn't want to die. He's a, he wants to to have a future, as as you know, understandably as we all would. It's a it's a complicated gesture, but also one that he wouldn't have had a lot of choice over anyway if he was indeed able-bodied enough to be fighting. And then finally, in November 1918, he is killed. Can you tell us about the circumstances of his death? Just a few days before the war ended, as the Germans were being beaten back, and there was a lot of positivity and people knew that this was the end, Owen was leading his platoon to try and cross a canal, the Sombre Canal, which is north of a little village called Or. In his last letter, he describes spending the evening in this in a smoky cellar of a little forester's house near the canal, which is still there. It's become a visitor's centre now for, for Owen Owen fans. And he's he's crammed into this smoky basement with the other men and they're all sort of jostling for space. And it's it's very good humoured. There is this feeling that this is the the last push. And he writes to his mother about them all laughing and joking and snoozing by the fire. And then at midnight a few days later, um, between the third and the fourth of November he leads an attempt to cross this canal to push the Germans back further. And they get into position on the bank and a huge barrage begins at daybreak. And as the barrage stops, they he tries to lead his men through these flooded ditches and to get to the towpath by the canal with their temporary bridge that they've constructed. When the Germans, who they didn't realise were, were quite as um, dug in as they were, opened fire from a whole line of machine guns on the other bank, very close by... And their temporary constructed bridge is broken. There are sort of splinters of wood flying everywhere. And the engineers are trying to repair it. But almost all of them are shot. And, and two of them survive in the end. So it's you know, impossible. And Owen was on the bank at the same time, trying to encourage his men to keep going. So patting them on the back, going from one to the other, trying to keep them keep them working, giving them a hand with the duckboards. And at that point, he's shot. <clears throat> After his death... A few of the the second Manchester's, which was um, the brigade that he was with, make it across with with a floating bridge that they've constructed from kerosene tins. Uh, but very few make it over, and and a huge amount were lost. And a week later, of course, the war was over. And so, with the delay of time that these things take, it was actually one of the, one of the big ironies of the war. The bells were ringing in Shrewsbury for the armistice this huge sort of national, international sense of relief at the moment at which Owen's parents get the telegram that they've been dreading for the, the two years that Owen has been on active service. So oh, so you've touched on this already. What was um, the nature of Owen's view of the war and how did this change over the course of the conflict? It, that's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, of course, the war itself changes over the four years. So uh, as, as I said, at the beginning, he's very interested. He's curious. It fits in with the the whole you know sort of Victorian schoolboy mentality of you know play up play up and play the game um he likes Henry Newbolt he, he he's adventurous and he's he's up for up for fun up for an adventure but by 1917 um when he's actually had a good deal of experience of the war he describes himself as a conscientious objector with a very seared conscience which is an extremely difficult position to hold and he sees he sees Christ in the soldiers around him. He's much more interested, I think, in the men, in in the, his comrades, and in the human spirit that he observes in them, in their endurance and their suffering, than he is in the war overall. Um, he certainly shares 
Sassoon's views, because he's so influenced by Sassoon, that the war is is hopeless and futile and has become a war of aggression. But really, his job, he feels, is to speak of the men around him and be the one who can who can describe their suffering better than most. He writes, again, I quote from his letters to his mother, Christ is literally in no man's land. There men often hear his voice. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. But the problem, as he finds it, is that this, of course, is as true for the Germans as it is for the British and French. And thereby it, you know, lies the, the irony of war with any kind of religious impulse behind it, that, that each side thinks that God is fighting for them. And and he sees sacrifice and he sees heroism in all on all sides. So while he admires the capabilities of the men, he also recognises the futility of it. So during the war, did Owen's poetry actually get much public exposure? And if so, did his poems resonate with the public? It didn't get much public exposure, mostly because his real war poetry, as we understand it, starts being written at Craig Lockhart and in the few months he has before he goes back to the front. So he has a very short time during the war in which he's actually writing. Only five poems get published before his death. Uh, a couple of them were published in the Hydra, which is the, the magazine for Craig Lockhart, and one in a journal called The Nation, which was Wrestlers, this, this poem about Antaeus. Sassoon, of course, promoted him both before and after his death. He introduced him to a lot of very influential poets and publishers. Once he died, uh, he was championed by Edith Sitwell, who was a friend of Sassoon's, and obviously by Sassoon himself. A collection of Owen's poetry was published in 1920, and then Edmund Blunden published a collection in 1931. But it's really only in the 1960s that he becomes anthologized in the big anthologies that you know, that I grew up with as a schoolgirl, um, you know, up the line to death, anthologies like that, that become the definition of what we'd understood during the 20th century as the canonical war poets. And John Stallworthy, a wonderful biographer and editor of Owen, gave, did a full edition of the Owen poems in 1994. And that was groundbreaking because he includes all the drafts. So you can see how the poems developed. Um, he was a, a meticulous scholar. And how would you rate poet? Oh, after I start that one again, how would you rate Owen as a poet and his and the impact of his poetry? Well, I think John Stallworthy puts it beautifully. Um, he describes Owen as a, a poet of passionate intelligence and disciplined sensuality, and I, I don't think you could get a better definition than that. Um, he was a deeply sensitive nature, and and he felt the suffering of the men around him acutely. He brought his very particular end of his love of Keats, his love of botany and landscape and nature and religious iconography and poetic experimentation to bear on his war experience, this kind of urgent and immediate and very dramatic, striking subject matter. And it's that combination that, that gives him his unique voice and gives his poetry such an impact. Kate, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much.
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.